All right, all right. Good to see you this morning. Let's, um, let's dive in. Let's dig into God's Word. We're going to continue our series. Uh, we're walking through the Gospel of John verse by verse, just unpacking it, trying to understand what, what does it mean, what's the authorial intent, the big idea of the author, with, which is uh, the Apostle John, and then how does the truths that we find in the, in the story, how, does, how do they apply to our lives? So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 5. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at the first 16 verses today. Chapter 5 is going to be split into two messages. Um, A lot of ground to cover. So we'll kind of finish uh, part 2, the rest of Jesus' message um, next week. All right, John chapter 5, verse 1. I'm not going to read the whole story. Actually, we're just going to kind of walk through it um, one or a few verses at a time. Verse 1 gives us context. After this... There was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So chapter 5 really begins a new section in in John's gospel, and you're going to start seeing opposition to Jesus. Here's the deal. If you're going to walk with God, you're going to face opposition. That's just reality. That's just, that's fact, right? Take it to the bank. People start opposing Jesus. If you remember... John is not writing his gospel as a chronology. Lots of events in the gospel of John are not recorded for us. They're mentioned in the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So you can find them there. But roughly half of John's gospel deals with 30 days of Jesus' life, which is pretty amazing. So the gospel of John isn't a chronology. We know that Jesus lived 33 years upon the earth. And and the book deals mostly with 30 days of his life. Verse 1 says there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. I think the word Jews there is a synonym for the religious leaders. The religious establishment was mainly the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now the, the Pharisees were the strictest sect of Judaism. They were hated by the common people and um, they, were de- they, they, they despised the, the Roman rule. Sadducees were wealthy aristocrats who were politically ambitious. They had religious and political power. They held authority over the Herodian temple at the pleasure of Rome. They only held to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, which we believe that Moses was the author. The Sadducees, when it comes to theological beliefs and their certain spiritual beliefs, they rejected life after death. They rejected the resurrection. Uh, They did not believe in angels, the supernatural, miracles, eternal punishment, or rewards. Now, this is really important because Jesus went to Jerusalem for a feast, and he talks about the the Jews were there, the religious leaders, and um, this is important. The Sadducees believed that each person was responsible for their own sickness, poverty, and misfortune. Now, I want you to remember that. As we walk through this story, that would be the mindset of the, of the, of the Pharisees, right? The, I mean, the Sadducees. You know what? You're sick, your problem. Your misfortune, your problem. Your poverty, your problem. John chapter 5, this event, this opposition that the religious leaders have against Jesus because Jesus performs this miracle really kind of, um, kind of kicks over a set of dominoes, right? It just begins opposition. 
And so it kind of kicks off a lot of trouble between Jesus and the religious leaders. And we know eventually the opposition leads to the crucifixion. Let's pick up the story in verses 2 and 3. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. In the ancient city of Jerusalem, it had gates on every side. And we're not going to talk about all of them. But on the north side near the, the temple precinct was the sheep gate. And the sheep gate in that day, it was named, really the gates back in the day were named for like direction um, or function. So for example... In the north, the, the northern gate, which was the Damascus gate, we believe it was that gate that Jesus carried the crossbeam to Golgotha. Through that gate, you would go north to Syria, Damascus. The sheep gate was also on the north, but it was used to bring in sacrificial animals to the temple. Now, near the sheep gate was a pool, um, the pool of Bethesda. Two massive pools with these huge porches. Actually, it was a series of reservoirs and medicinal pools. And the 19th century archaeologists uncovered these ancient pools. I've been to Israel, and I've, I've seen these pools, the archaeological uncovering with my own eyes. I'm talking massive pools. So, Bethesda means house of mercy. You're going to see in a moment that Jesus demonstrated an amazing act of mercy towards this one single man. Now, if you turn to verse 4 in your Bible, some of you might be like, I can't find verse 4, right? There's verse 3, there's verse 5, verse 4 is gone. What's going on, right? Unless you have a, a New King James Bible, then it's listed for you. If you have an ESV, which is what I preach from, or an NIV, or a New American Standard Bible, there isn't a verse four. It skips from verse three to verse five. Why is that? Let me give you a simple answer without getting into the weeds, because we could get into the weeds. Verse four is not in the oldest Greek manuscripts. We know that the New Testament was written in Greek. Our Bible, our English Bible, is a translation from the Greek text. Since some translations follow the oldest Greek manuscripts, verse 4 is not included. Now, here's what you have to understand. That shouldn't cause any reservations, any questions, any doubts, because here's the reality. We have thousands of fragmented manuscripts that have been compiled and compared, and honestly, it, it, it gives us is this beautiful uh, picture of God and this, this perfect puzzle of God's word when you put it all together. Some scholars believe that verse 4 maybe was added by a scribe. We know that a, a, a scribe, scribes hand copied manuscripts, right? This is how we have the Bible. Scribes hand copied manuscripts and then they were passed from gen, one generation to the next. So manuscripts were copied based on previous manuscripts. And so some scholars think maybe a, 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 it was a scribal addition, maybe in the margin, kind of explaining what's going on in verse 7 about the water being stirred. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Because in the New King James Version, it talks about an angel stirring the water. The point of the story is not so much about verse 4. 
It's not about an angel stirring the water. Here's what I want to tell you. It's about Jesus healing a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. We're going to look at this great healing. It's a powerful story. Look at verses 5 to 7. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. You see, the man is either crippled or paralyzed. He's been in this physical condition for 38 years, close to four decades. Let's break that down in terms of days. 13,870 days. This man has not been able to walk. Jesus walks up to this man, the setting, the pool of Bethesda, and he asks him a very simple question. Do you want to be healed? And the story tells us that, that Jesus knew how long this man had been lying at the pool of Bethesda. Why? He has this knowledge because he's God. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. John highlights this truth for us. Jesus asked the question, do you want to be healed? And the man's response, if you look at it, it's kind of perplexing. It's kind of confusing. You would think after 38 years, he would give a quick response. Yes, I want to be healed. He responds to Jesus by saying, I have no one to help me. When I do go, someone cuts in front of me. Now, here's the deal. Virtually nothing is known about this man. There's no name. There's no backstory. And I guess he has no friends because he says there's there's no one to help me to get into the water. Is he making an excuse? Maybe. Who knows, right? The details are not given. I think the details are are irrelevant to what Jesus is getting ready to do. Look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bread, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Here's point number one. It is not always God's will to heal us. It is not always God's will to heal us. There must, I want you to think about the setting. There must have been so many people that day at the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus walks through all these sick people, and he gets to this one man. And the story tells us that Jesus healed only one man. He didn't heal all the people that day. I mean, there's people who are blind, people who are lame, you know, um, invalids. He didn't heal everyone at the pool that day. Verse 3 tells us there was a, a multitude of people. Verse 13 tells us there was a crowd gathered at the pool. There was a crowd, but Jesus was laser focused on one man. He approaches this man and he says, get up, take up your bread and walk. Immediately, the man was healed. He took up his bed and he walked. I want you to picture this thing with me. Put yourself in this man's shoes. You haven't been able to walk for 38 years. You've been hanging out at the pool of Bethesda with maybe some friends or maybe no friends. Hopeless, helpless, right? Jesus approaches you. And he says, get up and walk. And immediately, you're able to get up and you're able to walk. Can you imagine the rush of adrenaline? 
Can you imagine? I mean, it doesn't give us the details. I think maybe this guy jumped for joy. Maybe he shouted. Maybe he fell and he worshiped at Jesus' feet. Who knows? Maybe he got up and he just walked away. You know, some Christians, they say, you know, the reason you're, you're not healed is because you have a lack of faith. Putting the burden on you. Well, what would you say about the Apostle Paul? I highlighted this last week. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Scholars think it was an eye condition. He asked the Lord three times, remove it, remove it, remove it. And God decided no. God decided not to heal Paul. Why? Because God was teaching Paul a spiritual lesson, that his grace was sufficient for him. That in Paul's weakness, God's strength would be manifested. Sometimes God chooses not to heal us. We don't understand why. And that's where the rub is. Some things are unknown to us. They're known to God. So focus on what you do know. Don't focus on what you don't know. I think that's a good principle in life. Sometimes we gotta focus on what do we know? What do we know about God, his character, his nature? What do we know about God's promises? What do we know about his attributes? He's loving and he's kind and he's faithful and he's good and he's just, right? I mean, th- this is what we need to major on. We need to major on who God is in the midst of a, maybe an illness, a disease. Whatever happens to us, we, we, we trust God. We, we place it before the Lord. God, if God chooses to heal, that's his decision. Sometimes we, people want to act like we can, we can twist God, right? We can change his heart. If we just have enough faith, then maybe God will be like, okay, I'm going to do it for you. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, that faith isn't a part of the process. I am saying, yeah, we need to place our faith in God. We need to trust God, believe that he is big, that he is glorious, that he can bring healing in our lives. But sometimes God says no rather than yes. I find it amazing. When the Jews asked this man, who healed you? Who told you to pick up your bed and walk? I mean, I don't know what kind of bed he had, right? I don't know if it was like a little preschool pallet or if he was carrying some big old king sofa sleeper deal. You know what I mean? But he picked up his bed. And the Jews are like, who, who healed you? And the man did not know who it was. You, we're going to see that in the story in a moment. He didn't know who it was. So when people say, well, it's a matter of your faith, this man had no faith. There was no evidence of faith in this man's life. He didn't have any faith in Jesus because he didn't know it was Jesus. So when we want to just focus in on, well, it's just faith alone. No, there's, there's more than that. We're forgetting about God's sovereignty that God does all that he pleases. He sits high and lifted on a throne in heaven and he does what he wants to do. And he's gonna accomplish his will, which is good and perfect for our lives, which will put a spotlight on his glory. We are hopeless and helpless, just like this man's physical condition. This man is helpless. He's hopeless 38 years. He says, I got no one to put me into the water. I mean, does the guy not have any friends? I mean, I don't, I don't know. But this man's physical condition mirrors our spiritual condition. We are helpless and hopeless without Christ. Only Jesus can take the brokenness, the rubble in our lives, and he can make us whole again. You know, the Bible says that we're born with this sinful nature, this bent towards sin. 
We have this insatiable desire to commit sin. God is holy, we're not. That's the problem, that's the bad news. You know, there's no sin trivial to God. Every sin we've ever committed, we, it, it, we have completely missed the mark, which is God's perfect standard of righteousness. When we sin, we miss the mark of God. But the good news, God sent his son Jesus to take upon that sin. He became our substitute. He took our debt. Jesus, who never committed any sin, took on every sin you ever committed so that you might be forgiven. That's the gospel. Every sin you've ever committed, Jesus, who committed no sin, took it for you. That's the gospel. We need to be reminded of the gospel every single day of our lives. We're broken. We we need to be made whole. Maybe your life is a mess. Maybe your marriage is a mess. Maybe your kids are a mess. Maybe your whole life is just, it's just, it's a mess. Christ can come in and he can fix you. He can fix the problems in your life. He can fix you spiritually. And he does that based on his grace, based on what he can do, not what we can do. Charles Stanley um, had a professor of evangelism who had an unusual way of teaching the grace of God. The last day of class, he would pass out the final exam, and it would literally take two hours, and he passed out the test, several pages, and and um, it was the hardest possible test ever. And on the first page, before the first question, there was a line that said, before you answer any of these questions, read through the entire test. Stanley read through the entire test sweating. He came to the end. At the bottom of the last page, it said, if you want an A, simply sign your name and answer no questions. Stanley signed his name. Which, what, which is what I would have done. He signed his name and he turned it in. He talked to the professor. And the professor's like, I've been giving this same test out for a long time. Some people get angry and they think it's unfair. They turn it in without filling it out. Others start writing furiously two hours into it and only halfway done. Frustrated, they turn it in. Some read through and have a sigh of relief. They sign their name and they turn it in. One guy read through the entire test. Uh, professor told Stanley he was upset about studying, all the studying he put in, and he tried to pass it. Two hours later, he got a C. This is a wonderful illustration that really shows us how people respond to God. Number one, people respond to God with, with anger. They're angry with the moral demands of God. They can't do it, so they just give up. Number two, people write furiously in the tests of life. They try harder. They they try to live better, a good moral life, and and they, they realize they just keep coming up short. Number three, some people understand that they need a relationship with God, but in defiance, they say, I can do it on my own. And then number four, Some people look at the demands of God, they sign their name, acknowledging their need for God's grace in their lives. Which one are you? The grace of God, which simply means unmerited favor, is something that transforms our lives. This is is what saves us, not our own merits. Our merits merit nothing, Christ's merit merits everything. 
You know, there's a famous line that, that people use all the time. God helps those who help themselves. Wrong. God helps those who cannot help themselves. This is the point. This is one of the principles of the story. This guy can't help himself. Right? He's crippled, paralyzed, helpless, hopeless. He needs someone to help him. Just like, just like we. We need someone to help us. We need a savior. Someone to make us whole again. Look at verses 9 to 16. And at once the man was healed. So Jesus said, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once, immediately, the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. I think that's key right there. Underline that. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Here's point number two, legalism is the enemy of grace. Jesus later finds this man in the temple. And you know, when God changes your life, what do you do? You start worshiping him. This guy's life was changed, radically changed. He goes to the temple, he's worshiping God. That's, this, this is what he's doing. And Jesus says to him, see your well. Sin no more, that nothing else may happen to you. Jesus is is literally calling this man to a life of holiness. You know, John gives us two markers, I think, that are really important in the story. They really kind of show us the big idea of the story, what's really taking place. At the end of verse 9, did you notice it said, now that day was the Sabbath? That's the first marker. Second marker, verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So problem, problem. Here's, here's, here's the major problem. The healing that Jesus brought to this man happened on a Sabbath. The Sabbath was Saturday. It was a holy day for the Jewish people. If you remember the fourth commandment in the book of Exodus, it was about remember the Sabbath, right? Keep it holy. And it was based on God's creation. God, you know, created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. What does the word Sabbath mean? Sabbath means day of rest. God says, I want you every seventh day, I want you to take a day of rest. Why? It would be a day of rest and a day of reflection. Now Jesus on one occasion said the Sabbath was, uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not the reverse. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath, a day of rest, a day of reflection, was given as a gift to mankind. You know, God knows what we need because God has built us. He knows us. He knows what's best for us. 
God says, I'm doing this for your benefit. I want you to have a, a Sabbath day of rest where you don't work, you worship, you rest, you enjoy family, community, and, and you take a break from working. You know, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are there not to hamper us. They're there to help us. The Ten Commandments are not there to, you know, punish us. They're actually there to free us. Because when you experience God's grace, his grace frees you. There's freedom. There's liberty, right? And so the Ten Commandments are like God's house rules, you know, and if you live according to these house rules, your life is going to be blessed. Some people, they look at the commandments and say, oh, it's archaic. And it's like, how can anyone keep these commandments? It's God's house rules. It, God is establishing this amazing blueprint for your life. If we follow this principle, we'll be blessed. So let's back, back to the story real quick. So the religious leaders say to the man, they have this confrontation. They got beef with this guy. They're like, hey, listen. Um, it, it's not lawful on the Sabbath, a holy day of rest, where you're not supposed to do anything. It's not lawful for you to pick up your bed. So they're like, they're calling this guy out. And we know that the temple is, is near this pool. And this is where the religious leaders would go. They had to have known this man. They had to have known about him. They, I mean, for 38 years, the guy hasn't been able to walk. They probably knew his family. They must have known some things about him. But you know what this story shows us? It shows us that they had hard hearts. Legalism is the enemy of grace. Legalism, I would say, is actually a big part of all other religions. Legalism is living by the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. It, it, it is living out of devotion to the law, not out of love for God. And, and so legalism is where people take the scriptures, and here's what they do. They add to the scriptures, right? Well, God wrote a number of rules, but those rules aren't clearly sufficient. So you know what? We have permission to add to God's rules and make other books and other lists. It was man-made rules, man-made traditions to keep the rules that God had clearly uh, given his people in the Old Testament. Here's what they're doing. They're adding to scripture, but number two, they're denying sola, sola scriptura, which during the Reformation, the Protestants coined this phrase, scripture alone, sola scriptura, is our highest authority. That was the slogan that was used that we've got to trust the Bible, the Bible alone, as our authority for truth and, and godliness. The religious leaders were just heaping on these extra rules. You know, it's, it's like God said, hey, you know what? Um, take a day off. Take a Sabbath day. And you'd think people would be excited about that. Wow, this is a great idea. The religious people, they come along, and you know what they do? Well, we need to put together a rule book for this, right? we got to figure out a way to, to, um, to memorize the rules, obey the rules, and, and, um, and we're going to discipline you if you disobey the rules. The Pharisees and the scribes, they heap these rules and burdens on top of the Sabbath. Let me give you a few examples. The Pharisees elaborated 
on some of these clearly defined rules, principles in the Old Testament. But then they created, they created their own, like you couldn't catch a fish on, on the day of Sabbath. You couldn't kill an animal. You couldn't make war. You couldn't lie with your spouse. You couldn't draw water. Um, you couldn't have a plan for a journey. You couldn't cook a meal. If you violated the Sabbath, you could be stoned to death. The Jews, to this day, they adhere to Sabbath rules. If you go to Israel, the Sabbath is the, the Shabbat, right? And on the day of, of Sabbath, there's a Sabbath elevator, right? I actually was getting ready to walk into a Sabbath elevator. Let me break it down for you. The rule here is if you're Jewish on the Sabbath, you cannot cause electricity to current. So you can't push the elevator buttons. There is a Sabbath elevator where you don't have to push all the buttons because all the buttons have been pushed for you already. So if it's a large building, you're stopping at every floor, Jack. It's a Sabbath elevator. I kid you not. I've seen it with my own eyes. I'm not fibbing. I, I mean, I stood there and I watched Orthodox Jews go into these Sabbat, these Sabbath elevators, and I thought, oh boy, it's going to take you a long time to get to your final destination, you know? On one occasion, Jesus said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The word Lord means master, sovereign, the one who's in control. Jesus is making the point, I'm the Son of Man. I'm the master of this day. What he was doing was, he was he was taking the messianic title of divinity from Daniel 7 about the one who is with God the Father in eternity past comes into human history as the God-man, ruler, king. And Jesus looks at the people and says, listen, I'm king, Lord of the Sabbath. If he is Lord, king, master of the Sabbath, guess what? He gets to define what the Sabbath is. He created it. He created the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. Legalism, I want you to write this down. No fill in the blanks, but I'm going to say it slowly. Legalism, there's a lot of legalism in the church today. Legalism is trying to do enough good deeds to make you acceptable to God. That's what legalism is. Trying to, make, trying to do enough good deeds to make you acceptable to God. To earn God's favor, right? Um, through your own strength, not relying on God's goodness. Legalism is a way of outward regulation. It's trying to achieve some special level of spiritual life by do's and don'ts. Legalism flies in the face of the Bible because the Bible says when you get saved, Christ is in you. The Holy Spirit is living and indwelling within you. If, if you're a legalist and you're trying to earn God's love, let me say it this way. If you're trying to control God by your good works, because that's what a lot of religious people are trying to do. They're trying to control God with their works and their good deeds. You can never do that. It will never be enough. They, they try to erect rules and regulations. Legalism makes the Christian life miserable. Legalism is opposite of license. License is this idea that you know, when you come to Christ, then guess what? You've been saved, now you have a license to sin. 
That's not in the Bible. The Apostle Paul, he told um, the believers in the book of Romans, right? May we increase in sin, may it never be, right? Paul's like, we should not use our freedom in Christ, the grace that we've experienced as a license to sin. Legalism defines Christian holiness on the basis of what you do and what you do not do. The problem with legalism, legalists go beyond what the Bible says. If someone ever tells you, this is what the Bible says, but you can't find it in the Bible, then it's not true, right? People try to, you know, they come up with these, all of these different things, right? Everyone's got their list, right? I mean, back in the day, you know, you couldn't drink, chew, or go with girls who do, right? Remember back in the day? I mean, like a few decades ago, you know, like playing cards, going to the movies. Like, I mean, like there was some hardcore fundamentalist Christians that were like, you can't do that. You can't go to the movies. You can't, you can't play with cards. You can't, you can't go dancing. It's their list. It's legalism. Because that's not, that's not what the Bible says. Now, there's principles in the Bible that should govern our actions, that should help us, right? Principles in the word that give us insight uh, so we can walk in wisdom, right? So, so we're not gonna quench the spirit. We're gonna walk with God. But you know what? The people have their lists. You have a list. I have a list. The problem is when we move our list from the gray area to black or white, that's when we get into trouble. Because there are gray areas. And some things are not a sin, but it bothers your conscience. If it bothers your conscience, if your conscience says, you know what, I just don't feel right about that, don't do it. Don't engage. Because if you do engage, for you, it's sin. But someone else, they can engage and they're fine. Give you give you a great example. In the book of Corinthians, the apostle Paul's writing, and um, you know, there was some real tension. Between the believers, there was meat that was being sacrificed to idols. Some believers thought, you know what? I can go. I can partake. I can buy that meat because those are false gods. There's only one God. Some other believers said, no, I can't do that. Like that meat is being used in a ceremonial way and it's being sacrificed in a worship setting to like false gods I can't buy that meat I can tell you where I land I'm gonna go get the barbecue I'm gonna go get the barbecue because there's only one God you know what I'm saying and I'm gonna eat the barbecue licking my fingers all the way home right but some people it bothers them here's the deal the book of Romans says the stronger reaches to the weaker what that what does that mean that means that you and someone else may not see it eye eye. You might have a different opinion, a different preference on something connected to someone else. And that's okay. When it comes to the essentials, Christian orthodoxy, here's what we do. We hold those things with clenched fists. We're gonna go to the mat on those things. Right? We're not going to give on those things. Right? The Trinity, 
the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the exclusivity of the gospel, that Christ is the only way to heaven. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We're not giving on those issues. But there are other issues, non-essentials, open-handed issues that, you know what? We can agree to disagree. And if you think all of your views are correct, I got news for you. You're wrong. And guess what? You know, I have a lot of opinions on a a lot of different things in the Bible. But I can guarantee you, outside of the non-essentials, I think that's key. Outside of what is really, really clear, what is really, really clear, outside of what is clear, am I making it clear? Outside of what's really clear, given to us in the Bible, there are some things, I've got it wrong. I just don't know where the wrong is. That's for all of us. And so let's not live a life based on law because that's what legalists do. The word legalism or legalist comes from the law. It's about erecting rules. It's not about a relationship. Christianity is based on inward transformation. How does one overcome legalism? How does one overcome legalism? It's not more information. This is how your heart can be reshaped and changed, and you can move away from legalism. You can move from being a fault finder, critical spirit. There's a lot of fault finders, right? People are always finding fault with other people, people who are critical. I mean critical of so many gray areas. It's like, that's your opinion, right? Hold hold to your opinion, great. But don't impose that on someone else, like that's the gospel. There's a lot of gray areas. Man, I wish I had time, because I really want to start listing a lot of gray areas. I mean, political platforms, right? Does that bother you? I didn't say moral issues. Political platforms, if you're a strong Republican, you know, the Democrats, all Democrats, they're, they're not from the devil. If you're a Democrat, you know, well, That was a joke, that was a joke, that was a joke, that was intentional. The problem is, there's problems on both sides. There's good things on both sides. That's one issue, right? Holidays, festivals, do you, do you bring Santa into the Christmas season? Do you not? Man, I've had people say, man, pretty much like, you're of the devil, dude. You are worldly if you do that. Oh, come on. I mean, give me a break. Really, give me a break. You know, there, there's so many issues. Alcohol, right? Someone says, you know, I can partake. I can have a glass of wine. I'm not in sin. Doesn't bother my conscience. But another person, I can't do it. There are so many issues that we as believers, we need to hold loosely with grace-filled hearts. Legalism is rooted in pride. Because you think you're superior. You think you're superior than someone else. It's the Pharisee and the tax collector. Great story. They come, right? They're giving their offering. Pharisee, chest out, you know, prideful, superior. He prays, God, I thank thank you that I'm not like this guy. It's pointing to that guy. And that tax collector, his head is bowed, 
I mean, his, his heart is a reflection of, of his posture. And he beats his chest. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He has a correct understanding of who he is. Legalists are like the Pharisee, superior. They have a superior complex. I'm better than you. I know more than you. I'm more spiritual than you. Sometimes we play the card as Christians. I'm more spiritual than you because I do X, Y, and Z. Make sure that you, you're not going beyond Scripture. Because if you are, you're a Pharisee. You're straight up a Pharisee. You're a Sadducee. You are the people that Jesus is calling out. How do we overcome? i got to land the plane. I think I've asked this question like three times. How do we overcome legalism? I don't have an answer for you. No. It's not, a, it's not more information. It's God's grace. When you experience the grace of God, he changes your life. You have a greater love for him. You have a greater love for people. Why did John include this story? Look at John 20, 30, 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. His word signs is the word for miracles, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote so that we would believe Christ is the Messiah, he's the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, we would have life through him. You see a life transformed by God's grace. Your life can be transformed as well you surrender to Christ, let him do that work of grace in your life. Let him change you from the inside out. He could do a sweet thing in your life. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for this story in John 5. What a powerful story about a man who was crippled or paralyzed for 38 years. Father, we see the compassion of your son, the Lord Jesus, who walked to him. He saw him. He knew him. And grace showed up to change his life. Father, thank you, Lord, that you show us the way. You show us the way that it's the way of grace, not the way of legalism. It's not rules, it's a relationship. It's not having a, a feeling of superiority over other people. It's, it's humbly, humbling yourself and, and serving and loving other people and keeping your eyes focused on, on you. God, I pray that we would be believers marked by your grace, that we would allow your grace to shape us and change us and to make us into the people that you want us to be, which is to be Christ-like. Help us to be like your son, Jesus, in every possible way. Lord, I pray for maybe that one person today that's in this building or listening online. Father, maybe their life has been about 
chasing rules and setting up external stuff to obey, to try to earn favor with you. God, I pray that you would show them the way, you would show them your son Jesus who became the way for them, who is the only way for them. And that it's not about earning favor with you. It's about confessing sin and surrendering oneself to Christ. I pray, Father, for that person to open their life to you today, to trust you for the very first time to be their Savior. God, speak to us now. Through your word, we pray this in the strong and mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.